Welcome back to the Bible Brush Up podcast. Today's episode is going to be focused on your favorite topic as you go through the Old Testament. And you know what I'm thinking. Your favorite topic is genealogies. Of course, everybody loves a good genealogy. I know, in fact, some people give up on their Bible reading plan altogether because they get into lengthy genealogies. But we are going to talk about them today because I think there is a way that um, can maybe spice up your genealogical reading and help you actually enjoy some of that content. Um, and so the question is, how can I enjoy reading through genealogies? Well, the first thing you have to do is you got to pay attention to the names. Uh, that may seem obvious, but I think too often we tune out after we get to the second name that we can't pronounce, and then we just kind of get into a coma as we move through the pages until we come out the other side and suddenly we're struck awake once again and we go back into our reading and enjoy the content. But you can actually glean some things from the genealogies that are in the Bible. Um, just to back up a tad, I would say that because in these early periods, because writing was so rare and the mediums used to write were so valuable and the ability to write was so scarce, it's a reminder that there was no wasted space on the pages of scripture as they were being penned. It wasn't like today where you write a note and you're like, yeah, I don't like that. I think I'll scratch that out. I think I'll wad that up and throw that page away. You didn't do that back then. You wrote very methodically. You were strategic in what you were going to say, and you made sure that every word counted. And so these genealogies aren't them just trying to fill space like you trying to fill that third page of your homework assignment when you were in school, but rather these are very important to the storyline. And so when I go through the scripture, I'm kind of looking for the reason why these names are in the scripture. Why is this here? And so we're going to do some exploration with that. And I want to move all the way back to Genesis chapter 9 and Genesis chapter 9. In verse 27, this is after this incident occurs with Noah and his son Ham. His son Ham looks upon his nakedness, and it brings a curse upon Ham. Uh, but the other two sons, Shem and Japheth, they cover up Noah. They don't look upon his nakedness. And so this is the follow-up from that event. Uh, we're going to actually look in verse 26. It says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. This is a good starting point for our geological discussion, since this becomes a fountainhead for all the genealogies that are going to unfold in the future passages of Scripture. Obviously, Adam and Eve had sons and daughters, but they've now all died out in the flood or from natural causes prior to the flood, and so they're no longer part of our discussion. So this is a good place to start. Now, Shem has a very important role in the scripture, and it comes out in this passage that we just read. And I want to bring a, maybe a little critique to whatever translation you may have, because some translations actually supplement a name in this passage that should not be there. If you go to the original Hebrew, it's not there. And so in verse 27, it says, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. That's a correct reading of that. Let him. Some Bible translations actually put the word Japheth 
in place of the pronoun him. And so it reads, may God enlarge Japheth and let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. But I actually agree with uh, Walter Kaiser Jr., who did some research on this, and he connects the word him to God. So it would actually read, may God enlarge Japheth and let God dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And so now that reads completely different, and it actually makes a lot of sense as you go forward in the biblical narrative, because who's Shem going to turn into? Well, if you follow the storyline, you get to Genesis 11, 10 through 26, we find out the descendants of Shem lead to Tamar and to Abram. Abram obviously becomes Abraham, and through Abraham we get the Jewish people. And the Jewish people are going to end up with a leader named Moses, and Moses is going to be given the instructions to build a tabernacle. That's a tent. And who lives in the tents of Shem? God lives in the tents of Shem, not Japheth. And so if you're trying to make sense of how Japheth's going to live in the tents of Shem, and if your Bible made that mistake and put Japheth in place of that pronoun, him, then you're always going to be scratching your head and wondering, hmm, how did that... Uh, unfold. Well, I guess I'll never know. I'll just keep on reading. And so you've lost interest in your genealogy already. That's rarely going to be the case where the Hebrew uh, is not properly interpreted in a translation, but every once in a while that happens because of the complexity of the language. And I'm by no means a Hebrew scholar, but I certainly have read those who are and looked at the research there, and I think that that's a very convincing argument. And so keep that in mind. Um, but that's just one of many genealogical um, accounts. And if you move forward in the storyline after Abraham, you're going to get some of Abraham's descendants. We see, obviously, the main storyline of Scripture follows Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his 12 sons, which become the Israelites, and eventually we get to Jesus Christ. That's the one that we're usually focused on, but the ones that we get bored with and often fall asleep on are the ones not connected to that story. And so, for instance, we look at Lot. Lot was a nephew of Abraham, and Lot and Abraham go different directions. Lot's in Sodom and Gomorrah when it's going to be destroyed, and he leaves there with his uh, wife and daughters, but his wife turns around when Sodom and Gomorrah is being burned to the ground, and she becomes a pillar of salt. Well, now, we have no way of carrying on the lineage of Lot, and so this is another unfortunate story. It's kind of gross, but Lot's daughters get Lot drunk, and they sleep with them, and they bear children from their own father. And one of them's name is Moab, and the other one's name is Ammon. And from that, that event, we get the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now, here's what you need to do to keep your genealogies intact and fresh and and meaningful is from now on when you read about the Moabites and you read about the Ammonites with an N, not with an R, because there are Amorites that we'll get to in a minute. But when you read about the Ammonites and the Moabites, you need to recall the events that brought them into being. Because what's going to happen is these enemies of God's people are going to try to disrupt God's plan. And it causes you to stop and say, hmm, why did they come into being? Why are they here opposing God in the first place? And you go back, and the reason being is because of unfaithfulness and sin. We have the unfaithfulness of Lot's wife. If she had still been in the picture, this wouldn't have been a problem. And then we have the unfaithfulness of 
Lot and his daughters and what they choose to do and how they choose to live and how they don't follow God's instructions on where to go. And um, there's just a, a whole mess here, and it results in wars and uh, just total disaster all around. And it's like this could have been avoided. Like you wonder why are all these people killed out and why is all this um, devastation unfolding in Scripture? Well, it goes back to a single sin or a, a handful of sins. And that's usually the case. When we look at mass destruction and we look at chaos in our world, oftentimes it can be traced back to a single event, or at least it starts there and it becomes a ripple effect that gets like a, a tsunami by the time it's done and it wreaks major havoc on the world around it. And so that's one of the things that I'd like you to take away from this. Just remember, Moabites, Ammonites come from Lot and his daughters. Moving forward, we go to uh, Genesis chapter 10. And in Genesis, well, this is kind of moving backward from Lot, but thinking back about Ham and the curse that came upon Canaan, uh, you look at Ham's genealogy and you get all sorts of enemies of God's people. Uh, as you read through the Torah, you're going to come across these names often side by side by side, and you probably get tired of saying them. The Hitt Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, uh, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Zemorites, Zem uh, and so on and so forth. There's a, a slew of them, and they all come from Ham. Now, Ham is the son of Noah that come, uh, came under this curse, and they're going to be the servant. And we find out that this servant position has caused them to become very combatant, and they are militant in their approach. And so they rise up and they fight. And this becomes a thorn in the side of God's people later on. When they come back into Canaan, the land, obviously named after the son of Ham, Canaan, when they come in and the Canaanites are there, they're the ones who keep causing trouble. They're the ones who keep rising up and, and oppressing God's people. And uh, God uses them at times to test the Israelites, and he uses them to bring judgment on the Israelites. But you got to keep asking yourself, why are these people here? Why did it unfold this way? Well, it goes back to Ham and his sin. It goes back to um, the kind of person that Ham chose to be, and that brought an entire curse on his family line. And um, out of Ham, not only comes Canaan, becomes Egypt, which Egypt becomes a major source of contention for the Israelites as they become enslaved, uh, which is interesting because it says Canaan's going to be the servant of him in the passage that we earlier were looking at in Genesis 9, 26 through 27, where that pronoun was being um, maybe misused referring to Japheth instead of God. And so, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Well, whose servant? Is that talking about Shem? Well, once again, I think that might be talking about God because it seems that Canaan is being used by God to sometimes oppress and, and bring judgment upon uh, God's people. Sometimes he's being used to preserve God's people. Um, it doesn't seem often that Egypt or the Canaanites are always subservient to the Israelites. In fact, a lot of time it's the other way around. And certainly that's the way it is in Egypt because the Israelites are slaves to the 
people of Egypt. However, I guess under Joseph, you could say, well, Joseph was in command. And so in a sense, he was kind of ruling the show. And so it could be interpreted either way. That's fine. That's not a big deal uh, for what we're talking about today. Uh, but it is interesting to see that dynamic of who's ruling over who. And it seems to flip flop at times. But God is always using Canaan in a way that brings about his purposes for Shem. Shem gets to be the major player here because through Shem, we get Abraham and the Israelite people. Um, and so what, as you read through the Old Testament and the Torah especially, when you hear Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites with an R, not with an N, uh, and all these other ites, Girgashites, Hivites, and so on and so forth, you need to be thinking back to the story of Ham and what Ham did and what led to these people and the curse that they were under and the position that they would play in redemptive history. And that should remind you of why it has gotten to this point and why things look so bleak for these people. It is because they were born out of a very sinful set of circumstances and they've not left that identity to join with God's people, which was always an option. You could always, like um, Rahab, the prostitute, who's a part of the Canaanites, when they come into Jericho, she helps them and she leaves her people and joins with God's people because she understands that God has brought a blessing to them and a curse to her own people. And so she leaves them to become a part of the people of God. And she becomes a part of a genealogy that's very important too, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it's all because she was willing to make that jump from one tribe to another tribe. Um, but genealogy keeps us informed that she was a part of something bigger than just storing aside and hiding a few um, spies of Israel. Uh, some other people that maybe we want to focus on, Esau. When Jacob and Esau are born, Esau obviously was first, and he would have been the one who had a birthright and would have uh, received a blessing from his father as the oldest. He would have received a double portion of the inheritance of the estate that uh, Isaac had, but because of the trickery of Jacob, Jacob ends up getting all of that, and Esau is left without. And uh, while that might seem distasteful from the viewpoint of Jacob, uh, Esau, he shouldn't have so easily gave up that birthright. That was something that he was catering to the flesh rather than to the promises that God had made earlier on about salvation coming through uh, the bloodline of Abraham, and he should have clung to that and wished greatly to be a major part in that, but rather traded it for stew. And uh, so don't feel too bad for Esau when you read that story, even though there are some questions that he'd answered there that maybe we'll talk about in another episode. But um, Esau becomes the father of the Edomites. So when you're reading through the scripture and you come across the Edomites, you need to reflect on that and say, hmm, where did they come from? What happened that caused them to get here? And so you have this long genealogy that uh, comes to us uh, in Genesis that lays out all of Esau's descendants, and it says that he's the father of the Edomites, and the Israelites are going to have to go through Edom on their way to the promised land, and so they're in, going to encounter this enemy. Um, but could it have been different? Could things have unfolded differently um, if righteousness had been on display and there hadn't been um, this contention between uh, father and son, and perhaps um, maybe maybe if what God told Rebecca, because God told Rebecca that the younger or the older would serve the younger, if maybe that had been communicated to Isaac and Isaac had listened to that and just had blessed and given that all to 
uh, Jacob and just explained that this is God's command. And, and then there didn't have to be all this trick, uh, trickery and uh, usurping of the other person's natural rights, what they felt they were entitled, then maybe things had been different. I don't know. But I certainly know that it all goes back to the sibling rivalry, and that sibling rivalry explodes into all-out war and combat that leads to uh, just a bloodbath. And as you're reading through these genealogies, you start to see other names that pop up. You see that Esau marries Ishmael's daughter. Whoa, where'd Ishmael come from? Remember, Ishmael was the son that should have never been. Ishmael is the son that came about because of a lack of faith on Sarah's part. She thought that she was too old to have a son with Abram, and so she says, go and sleep with my servant. And from that arrangement comes Ishmael. And later on, when Sarah does conceive and uh, births Isaac, then Ishmael is sent away into the wilderness, and they're afraid they're going to die, but God uh, provides for them. And Obviously, there's some hostility that grows between those two sons and their offspring. And so Esau, he's already got a lot of animosity built up towards Jacob at this point. And so he marries someone else who's also got some animosity built up against the Israelites, Ishmael's daughter. And now we have a rivalry against God's people that has so much history behind it that it's almost inevitable that they are going to come to uh, a point of major contention later on. And they do. And in fact, a lot of the wars over in the Middle East today are because of these contentions and this history. And, and so you wonder, why? Why is all the fighting going on? Why does it all happen? Well, if there had been a little more faithfulness and a little more, tr little more trust of God's plan, we might not have that over there today. But because of sin and because of faithlessness, we have ongoing war that seems to have no end in sight until Jesus comes back. Um, furthermore, as you follow the bloodline of Esau, you see that he is the father of the Amalekites. So we have the Ammonites with an N, we have the Amorites with an R, and we have the Amalekites uh, from Amalek, who is Esau's son from his wife Ada, who he took from the Hittites. And the Hittites came from Ham. And they were people that Abraham, uh, you know, and his descendants, uh, particularly Isaac, the father of Esau, he didn't want his sons marrying from the Hittite women. But because of the deception of Jacob and because of how things unfolded, he just, he goes and does it almost out of spite. He just says, they don't want me to marry a Hittite woman. I'm going to marry a Hittite woman. I'm going to marry um, Ishmael's daughter. I'm going to marry everybody you don't want me to. And in doing that, he creates these enemies of God's people later on in the storyline. And so this is just a small sampling, and we're going to conclude here because we're running out of time. But as you look through the genealogies and you begin to see these names that continue to pop up later on, um, they become quite meaningful, and they can actually inform how you see the storyline of Scripture uh, unfold. And so pay attention to these names that we've talked about and remember the stories that started them all. Remember the story of Ham. Remember the story of Lot. Remember the story of Esau. And understand that sin has ongoing consequences far beyond what we can see. We'll see you next time on the Bible Brush Up.